In case you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, let's just recap, get kind of a running start into this section of scripture we'll be looking at this morning. Jesus, the disciples, they left the region of Galilee. They've made their way north to the cities of Caesarea Philippi. While they've been making their way, Jesus has been having this dialogue, a conversation with the disciples. He asked them a question. Who do men say that I am? It's an open-ended question. And I'm sure while they're making their way, as the dialogue unfolds, the disciples, as we're told, they respond, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now, that was a common idea that had been circulated by King Herod, that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. And before you think that that's crazy, don't forget John and Jesus were family, and historians say that they looked very similar. So the idea that maybe Jesus was John resurrected from the dead, this being the first century and whatnot, it's not far-fetched. So they say, some say you're John. Others say you're Elijah, which was not far-fetched either. The prophet Micah had foretold that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so some had speculated that Jesus was actually Elijah. And then they just kind of, in, in a summary sense, say that others say that you're one of the prophets. Matthew's account of this passage says that one of the ideas they threw forward was that Jesus was actually Jeremiah. So Jesus begins this dialogue by just asking, what's the pervasive wisdom? Well, what's the rumor meal? What are people saying about me? So they respond. But then Jesus issues a follow-up, a more important question, really. He says, first, who do men say that I am? And then he transitions, who do you say that I am? Forget about what everybody else is saying. What do you think? And really, this is the most important question that Jesus asks because he asks the same question of each of us. Forget about what culture says. Forget about what religion says. Forget about what other people say. Forget about what your parents think. Forget about all of these other things Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? And it's the answer to that question that will have the biggest ramifications for your life, not just today, but for all eternity. Now, Peter, Peter steps up to the forefront, kind of puts on his Pope hat, and he says, listen, you are the Christ. Now, we know the, that word Christ. It's not Jesus' last name, as we mentioned last week. It's a title. You are the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah. And it was really a glorious declaration. But then Jesus, in response to this, does something fascinating. We're told that Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Now that seems kind of counterintuitive, right? I mean, aren't we told to go into the world and tell everyone that we can about Jesus? And yet Jesus is telling the disciples, you're right, right on the money, spot on. Now keep it to yourselves. It's like the total opposite. So why, we must ask, would Jesus tell the disciples after this incredible declaration, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised anointed king. Why would Jesus then tell them to keep it on the DL? Well, the answer is clear. Jesus censors them, not because they were wrong in their answer or wrong in their conclusion, but Jesus censors them because their understanding of what the Messiah was, who he was, what he had come to do, it was incomplete, it was lacking, and it would have fostered more misconceptions. Now, moving forward into the section of scripture we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is about to correct their misunderstanding about the Messiah, and then he's going to transition, he's going to make it clear what it really means to be a follower of the Messiah. 
Verse 31, Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, and Jesus spoke this word openly. Literally, he spoke it without concealment, unreserved in speech. The word literally means that he was fearless and confident. So he spoke this openly. Jesus began. That's an interesting word, began. Because what it does is it indicates a unique and direct, an intentional shift and the subject matter, the dialogue of what Jesus has been teaching the disciples. At this point, Jesus is going to begin to teach them things about himself that he has not taught them in the previous two and a half years of teaching. This is new. At this point, at this juncture, at this moment, Jesus decides it's important to teach them something. He begins to teach them something that has never been explained. And so we should ask, why would Jesus wait till this moment to begin such an important lesson about himself, about his destiny, about what he came to do? This is an important that the Son of Man must suffer and die and be resurrected. It's at this point that Jesus begins to teach him these things that he's never taught them before. So why now? Why now? Well, I think it's important to note that Jesus, he could now teach them about the Messiah and could communicate what would be, as we'll see, a radical departure from the common traditional understanding of who the Messiah was, now at the point that they had concluded on their own that he was what? The Messiah. They had just concluded and had just exited Peter's mouth that Jesus was what? The Messiah. For the first time, the disciples reached this conclusion. Now, I think they had always thought it. I think that it had been under the surface. But Jesus finally asked, who do you say that I am? And their response, you're the Christ. And it's now at this point that Jesus begins to teach them about the Christ, about the Messiah, because they had accepted that he was that person, which is interesting. Because I think an observation we can take is that sometimes, as a matter of fact, let's just go all the way and say most times, there is a progression to Revelation that Jesus reveals himself often in a progressive manner. Think about the flow. Jesus asks, who do men say that? What's the rumors? He then follows that up with, now what do you say? And once Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus then does what? He then begins to tell them things, now that they had reached that conclusion, that he couldn't tell them before. Now that they had accepted him as the Messiah, he could then start to teach them things that would really challenge everything they believed ahead of time. Hey, the Messiah, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And guess what it's going to mean for you? That you're going to also suffer and die. I think that was a point that they couldn't really wrap their brains around if they hadn't first come to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was. And let's, let's be frank. Jesus is not a marketing fool. Jesus understands humanity. He made us. And I think as a byproduct of that, Jesus knows that it's often difficult, it's hard, 
For a person to accept life in Christ without first concluding Jesus is the Christ. You first have to accept that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus was sent to be the Savior of mankind. You have to accept who Jesus was and is before you can really accept the implications that that has for you. Revelation, it always begins with who Jesus is before progressing to what he came to accomplish and how this affects our lives. We see this progression in this passage of Scripture. But you know, it's interesting that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul actually employs the same kind of progressive revelation. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Note the progression. Before, and this is as Paul's saying it, before I could really understand about the suffering, before I could come to an understanding that to follow Jesus meant that I would suffer, before I could accept that and wrap my brain around that, I had to know about his resurrection. That even if the suffering came to death, that there was something more and something greater. So I had, before suffering, I had to understand resurrection. But before I could understand resurrection, before I could know his resurrection, what does he say? I needed to know him the progression, that I may know him, that I know Jesus, and now I know the power of his resurrection, and also I fellowship in his suffering, that there is a progression to the spiritual life. And this idea of progressive revelation, it really should have two important implications for our lives. Personally, who Jesus is, the answer to that question, it's the first question that you have to answer. Sometimes when we come to Christ, when we're beginning to explore Scripture, we have all of these questions that need to be answered. And they can be answered. But understand, before Jesus will begin to enlighten you on all of these other things, you have to first answer the most important question. Who is Jesus? You know, when we talk about miracles and people want to attack Scripture and have a conversation, well, how could Jesus do the miraculous? Before you can begin to answer all those questions, you have to first lay some context. What? Well, let's talk about who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is God, the creator of all things, the man who spoke all things into existence out of nothing, if that's Jesus, then is it really too far-fetched? that the guy who formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him, that God couldn't fix an eyeball, couldn't spit, clean out the stuff, and like make him see, right? You have to start with Jesus. Well, I just don't know if Jesus could rise from the dead. Okay, I understand that, but let's first get back to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Because if Jesus is God, the author of life, then his resurrection, is it illogical? You see, the personal implications of a progressive revelation is that you have to start with who Jesus is. And then everything else can begin to make sense. But there's another implication to this. 
there's an evangelical implication because I think Christians often take the wrong approach when witnessing to people, when having conversations with quote-unquote unbelievers. Because we very easily will end up, through the course of dialogue, running down rabbit trails. Who is Jesus? It's the most important question because, well, it's relevant to your eternal destiny, but it's the most important question you should stress to your friends. Why? Because that's where it all starts. And it's ultimately where it all finishes. Who is Jesus? Now, we've mentioned that before Jesus could explain more details concerning the Messiah, he had to first wait till the disciples verbally affirmed that he was the Messiah. You are the Christ. Okay, great. Now I'm going to begin to teach you some things about the Christ, about the Messiah, that are going to run against pervasive traditional ideas concerning the Messiah. And so before we look at how Jesus addresses this, we should at least discuss what the pervasive wisdom was concerning the Messiah. In the first century, what was the religious teaching, the fundamental teaching concerning the Messiah? Now note, before we answer that question, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah, of the prophetic coming king, what the Pharisees taught, what the scribes believed, what the elders communicated to the people, what the people were looking for, it was not wrong and it was not unbiblical. As a matter of fact, every single point that you can make about what they viewed concerning the Messiah was scripturally based. The problem is that it was incomplete and short-sighted. Let me give you a few points. And I've pulled these, by the way, from a Jewish-based website concerning the Messiah. This is not a Christian-based website about the Messiah. And we're going to go through these points because it's interesting that the views on what the Messiah should be then in the first century is the same today. It's, it's identical. The Jews are looking for the exact same Messiah that they were looking for in the first century. And they're looking for a Superman. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not the comic book character, Superman, was actually based, some kind of a Jewish Messiah, and how it was designed. That's a side point. But the Superman, they're looking for, today and then, a man with a supernatural ability with supernatural power, who's charismatic in demeanor, who has the ability to wax poetic, to be eloquent, to rally people, even people who might have conflicting views, who might have beef with one another, that this Superman has the kind of ability to step in, to speak, and people rally behind him. That in many ways, he's a revolutionary. So they saw the Messiah as a superman. They also saw the Messiah as a political leader. Now, every point we're going to be making here, there's scripture to back up, Old Testament prophecy to back up. Now, we don't have time to look at every single point and look at every single passage. So I'm just going to kind of begin with one section of prophecy, and we'll build from there. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, I'll read it for you. We're told that, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. The Jews were looking for a superman who was also a politician, a political revolutionary leader. We're told that what they were looking for 
is that this king, this political leader, would rise to power in the midst of great suffering and in the midst of war. Now, the conditions were set there in Rome, right? The Jews were a conquered people. They were oppressed people, and they were looking for a, a revolutionary, a political king. They saw that the scene was set, according to Ezekiel, that they were being oppressed. There was war and suffering, and they're looking for a political leader. This leader would be a descendant of King David. He would bring all of the Jews who had been scattered throughout the empire. They would, he would bring them home from exile. He would restore Jerusalem as a, as. Uh, the capital, and he would establish a global government in Israel for both Jews and Gentiles. They were looking for a man who would rally the troops, who would lead a revolution against the Roman occupation, against tyranny, not just to drive the Romans out of Israel, but to do away with the Romans entirely, to bring Israel back to being a global superpower. So this superman would be a political leader. He would also be a religious leader. Isaiah 11, verse 2, we're told that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This comes from a Jewish website. These passages included. This political leader would also bring about a spiritual awakening among the people. He would rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. There would be sacrifice, but not sacrifice of atonement, sacrifice of thanksgiving. He would restore Jewish law as the law of the land, and the whole world would recognize the Jewish God as the only true God. The Jewish religion would be the only religion, and as a result, there would be no murder, no robbery, no competition or jealousy, that there would be peace on the earth, that this Messiah would bring about an end of strife and an end of sin. And so the Jews were looking for, and it's all scriptural, a superman, a political leader, and a religious leader. Now, according to JewFAQ.org, which I'm going to assume stands for Frequently Asked Questions, quote unquote, after they go through this list, they say, Jews do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, assuming that he existed and assuming that the Christian scriptures are accurate in describing him. He simply did not fulfill the mission of the Messiah as it is described in the Bible. Jesus did not do any of the things that the scriptures said the Messiah would do. Now we know that many of these things Jesus didn't do, and that's a truth. However, prophetically, scripture tells us that Jesus is coming again, that his mission had a dual role, a dual fulfillment, that Jesus came the first time to fulfill part of the messianic prophecies and then would come a second time to fulfill the latter. And this is where Jesus is going to build off because here was the problem. Their perspective of the Messiah, though scriptural, was incomplete. There were two things that the Jews had missed concerning the Messiah that in the the, the, the passage we just read, Jesus addresses. The first thing is that the Old Testament, in addition to presenting the Messiah as a superman, political leader, and religious leader, also presented the Messiah, not just as a superman, but as a God-man. See, the Jews did not view the Messiah as being divine. They viewed him 
as being human. Though, if they had studied scripture carefully, there was ample evidence to state that the Messiah would be divine. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God. That word mighty God is El Gabor. It is never used, ever, of a man. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming when I will raise up to David a a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And the days of Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The name of the Messiah? The Lord our righteous, or Jehovah, the name that was not spoken by the Jews. See, Scripture taught that in addition to these things, in addition to being a superman, that the Messiah would also be God. Now, there were other Old Testament passages. Micah 5, Psalm 2, Isaiah 7, Psalms 110, Proverbs 30, Psalms 45, Hosea 1, Zechariah 2, just to name a few. In the app, in the notes, these are all listed. Now, Jesus begins by addressing this one point. You've missed this. And he addresses this in a subtle way. Jesus says, coming off, you're the Christ. He says, you're right. Now, I'm going to tell you that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, that word was not used by accident. That title, the Son of Man. Because Jesus is making a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll read this for you. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, All peoples, nations, and men in every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel clearly seeing a vision of this Messiah, but making it clear that the Son of Man was also the Son of God. Jesus, this reference, he's addressing this first thing. Okay, you have all of these thoughts. They're correct, but you need to also realize that the Messiah would be the Son of Man, would be God, and that's me speaking of himself. But there's a second thing. You see, the Old Testament also presented the Messiah as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, Zechariah 9, Isaiah 42, multiple passages in the Psalms, all presenting the Messiah, not just as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. And Jesus now transitions to this second misunderstanding. Not only will Jesus, the Messiah, be a superman, be human, but he would also be God, but not only would be he a coming king, a revolutionary, but Jesus makes it clear he would also be a suffering servant. We're told that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer many things. The Messiah will be rejected by the elders, the scribes, the priests. The Messiah will be killed will be killed. Now, as mentioned, this idea is huge. It's big. It's controversial. It's radical to the disciples. This is not what they've been taught. 
And Jesus is backing it up scripturally. And I think the conversation, the dialogue, it took place that Jesus began to teach them. Gives the idea that this wasn't just one lesson, but is a summary of the lessons. That Jesus is going back to scripture and he's talking to them and he's sharing with them and he's illuminating various truths about the Messiah they had not considered. The Old Testament evidence for these things that Jesus mentioned. In Psalm 69, we're told that Jesus would be rejected by his brethren. In Micah 5, we're told that he would be beaten. Isaiah 50, that he'd be spit upon. Psalm 22, that he'd be mocked. Zechariah 12, that he'd be pierced. Psalms 22, that he'd be crucified. Zechariah 13, that he'd be forsaken by his followers. Psalms 41 and Zechariah 11, that he would be betrayed by a close friend. Isaiah 53, that he'd be crucified with criminals. But then Jesus says, but after three days, what would happen? The Messiah will rise again, Psalm 16. Now, one of our B-sides, and we don't have the time to get to it, is this word must, because it's, it's a word where Jesus is stressing that these things have to happen. It's not that there's a chance that they mu- the Messiah must. And why must the Messiah suffer these things? Well, we'll get to it in a B-side this week. But the Messiah must suffer because ultimately the Messiah, the suffering servant, came to do what? The most important thing? Not just free people from the oppression, physical oppression, but to liberate people from sin. That he must suffer. Why? Because the payment of sin had to be given by a perfect man, a spotless man, the Son of God. Now, this contrarian view of the Messiah. As you can imagine, it didn't jive very well with the disciples. And so we're told that Peter, he takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. And when he had turned around, he looked at the disciples and we're told that he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And the scene of activity Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ. According to Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus even commends Peter. He gives him a little gold star in his report card. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you can see Peter on cloud nine, right? Got the gold star on his shirt. He's all pumped up. He's jazzed up. Then Jesus starts talking about the Messiah having to suffer, and Peter's scratching his head, and he's thinking, okay, somebody's got to interject here. And since I'm going to be Pope, I might as well do this. So he jumps into the middle. He pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Now note, Jesus, he turns around, meaning Peter, babbling Peter, is at his back. He turns. He's not even facing Peter. He turns and what are we told? He looks at whom? His the disciples, his disciples. And then as he's looking at the disciples with Peter at his back, he then rebukes Peter, not even looking at him, saying, get behind me, Satan. It's like a throwdown of epic proportions. Snap into a Slim Jim, boom, like Jesus just laying it down to poor Peter. Now, the first observation here, let's look at Peter's rebuke. It's never good, by the way, to rebuke God. I don't know if if you've ever been in a situation like that, but 
God won't be mocked. Like, it's not good to rebuke God. I think he knows what he's doing. So Peter, what's he doing? Like, opening mouth, inserting foot, definitely. But you know, I think Peter gets too big of a, of a I think we hammer him too much about this particular passage. Because let's be honest, Peter has forsaken all to follow Jesus. I mean, Peter loves Jesus. Peter believes in Jesus. Peter has rallied behind Jesus. You know, I think that we should make it clear that the intent behind Peter's rebuke, it wasn't malice. It wasn't evil. I think it was love. I think Peter was sincere in his motivation. I think maybe in some ways that Peter's taking the same, like I'll take the bullet for the disciples because as Jesus is teaching this, they're talking about like what in the world is going on? And maybe like the morale within the troops is kind of dissipating. And Peter's like, somebody's got to stand up. Someone's got to do something. I really care about this ministry. But here's the other thing we should mention. Though Peter might have been sincere in his intent, unbeknownst to Peter, he was being used by Satan for evil. Now the application. The application in my mind is pretty radical. That even people who are sincere, whose motivation is love, who mean well, can be used by Satan for evil. Now, we don't have time to unpack that. We'll leave it for a B-side. But sincerity, it doesn't always mean clarity. Now, why would Jesus rebuke Peter in such a public way? Have you thought about that? I mean, the dialogue here, it kind of makes you feel a little awkward. I'm sure being there was awkward. That Here's Peter rebuking Jesus. Instead of just dealing with this privately, why would Jesus turn with Peter at his back look at the disciples, and then rebuke Peter in such a public, open, you got to imagine, embarrassing way for old Pete. I think there are two reasons. First, it's clear that Peter's rebuke of Jesus wasn't in private. It was in public. And I think Jesus rebuked Peter in public because Peter's rebuke had been in public. You know, I teach a Bible class, and I have students. And sometimes if they're talking they're being disruptive in class. I'll turn to them in front of everyone. I will rebuke them, tell them to shut up or ask them to leave. And they get embarrassed and they get bummed out. And they'll even come up to me afterwards and be like, why did you do that in public? Like my face turned red and like you really embarrassed me. I was like, I had to rebuke you in public because you were being disrespectful in public. And I had to make a point to the rest of the students that I wasn't going to tolerate disrespectful behavior. Peter, if he's speaking for the disciples or not, either way, his rebuke was in front of them. So Jesus makes a point of rebuking Peter, making it clear to them that what they were doing was not right. But then you have to ask, why rebuke Peter at all? And I think there are two reasons. First, Peter's rebuke it wasn't founded in the truth. Jesus, I'm sure, had been illustrating that all the points he's making about the Messiah were scriptural. And Jesus had to defend the word. You know, it's okay. It's okay to get into confrontation, if need be, when you are standing up for truth. Not for necessarily opinion, but for the word. We should fight for the word. 
But I think Jesus also rebuked Peter here because Peter, what Peter was saying was in direct contradiction to what Jesus had just said. And let's be honest. There was a satanic strategy aimed at trying to discourage and keep Jesus from the cross. This is not the first time we've seen this employed. If you recall, during the temptation situation earlier in Mark, but laid out in Matthew chapter 4, how did it unroll? We're told that Satan led Jesus up to a mountaintop, and he showed him the kingdoms of the world, and he says, if you bow down and worship, it's yours. What was the ploy? The ploy is you don't need the cross, Jesus. You don't need the cross. That this was weighing on Jesus. And it's strategic because from Caesarea Philippi, as we mentioned last week, Jesus will be going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Now, following the rebuke, get behind me, Satan, the throwdown. Jesus then quickly addresses a deeper heart problem within the disciples that we don't often mention here in addressing this passage. We're told that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then looking at the disciples, more likely also Peter, he says, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I love the way that the King James Version translates this. We're told, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. This word, savorest, which is a funny word because every time you type it, your spell check wants to change it to something else, like, thank you, old King James. This word savors, I love the word, because it does, I think it, 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 it defines what Jesus is saying a little bit better than not mindful. It literally means, in the Greek, the thinking that tastes good. That you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. That, that you enjoy, that you savor more of the thinking that appeals to men than the thing, thinking that appeals to God. Like, you're taking enjoyment out of worldly thinking versus godly thinking. That's what Jesus is saying. And let's be, let's be true, that Peter, what was the deeper concern here? Peter had allowed, he had processed everything Jesus had been teaching. He had allowed his mind to process things using human wisdom, rather than divine direction. Peter's processing this from a PR standpoint. We're leading a revolution. You're talking about leading a revolution and then suffering and dying? Like that doesn't bode well for rallying the troops. He's processing this using human wisdom and human intellect, and he liked thinking that way. And Jesus is saying you're not processing things in a godly way. You're not looking at them through a godly lens. It's been said that a sincere heart coupled with man's wisdom can lead to disastrous results. And in a greater sense, think of this. That the whole process, that this was, and Jesus is making it clear, that it's another illustration of their spiritual blindness. As you've been with us, we've seen that this is a continual theme Peter evaluated the situation only through an earthly perspective. He had failed to see a spiritual dynamic behind what Jesus is saying, and he had missed the mark completely. Hey, the big lesson. Eyes are the gateway to the mind, and in order to see the world properly, we need to keep our minds on the things of God and not the things of men. We'll get to that more in a B-side this week. 
Now that Jesus has addressed their misconception as to who the Messiah was, now he's going to address, as we mentioned at the onset, what it really means to be a follower of Christ. And we'll spend the last few minutes we have diving into verse 34. Jesus, he called the people to himself with the disciples also, and he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now the scene of activity, there's a a shift. We were first told that Jesus began to teach the disciples concerning the Messiah. Their misconception had been wrong. It needed to be adjusted. Now at this point, Jesus calls the people with the disciples also. So the lesson that Jesus is giving here is not just a lesson for the disciples. It's not just a lesson for the inner leadership of the church. It's a lesson that everyone needed to hear. And what's the lesson? Well, Jesus will transition from bad news to worse news. The bad news was, I'm going to die. The worst news is you need to die. Talk about a heavy lesson. Now, in order to avoid confusion, because I think this passage is twisted and warped, I think it's butchered, frankly, to mean a lot of things that Jesus didn't mean. So we're going to look at this with the time we have left in four simple stages. First, Jesus begins, whoever desires to come after me. Stage one, whoever, whosoever, what Jesus is saying is not for a few. It's not for the Jews. The idea is that anyone and everyone, all, whoever desires to come after me. This word desire, it means that that following Jesus, the process of following Jesus, the process of being a disciple, it begins with a decision. The Greek word translated desire, it's the word theo, which means to will, to be resolved, to delight in, to desire. The idea, whoever wills, whoever decides, whoever desires, whoever makes a choice to come after me, it begins with a choice. And from my perspective, it begins with a decision based in man's free will. Whoever wills, whoever desires, but then step two, let him deny himself. Let him deny. It's actually one word. And it means to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone else. It's to forget one's self-interest or one's interest or intent, oneself. Now, please note that the tense of this verb, let him deny, it's one Greek word, it's a verb. The tense is permanent. It describes whoever desires to come after me, Let him deny. One word. It's a permanent once and for all decision. That's the tense. And let's be honest. You have to understand the difference to understand what Jesus is saying between self-denial and the denial of self. Because this is where a lot of confusion enters into this passage. Self-denial, which on the onset is not what Jesus is talking about but it's often what people read into this. 
Self-denial can be defined as the self-sacrifice of one's desires or interests. Self-denial also goes by the name self-help, self-discipline, austerity, or asceticism. Self-denial is the basis for all morality, all moral code. Really, it's the basis of all religion. Do you realize that Amazon, as of Thursday, Amazon has 155,706 books under the classification of self-help. Self-denial. It's all about what I abstain from doing. Self-denial is what I deny me. And people work very hard to deny themselves for all kinds of reasons. I'll deny myself meat to try to be healthy. I'll deny myself a large soda for a small soda because I want to be healthy. I deny myself sleeping in because I have this compulsion that I have to wake up early and go running. I deny myself alcohol or I deny myself good television. I deny myself things that maybe in the past life brought me pleasure, but I'm now going to deny myself these things. Why? Because I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be religious. I'm going to deny myself so that God sees me and is pleased by my behavior. Buddhism takes it to an extreme that I deny myself any kind of emotion. It is self-denial. I don't smoke and chew or go with girls that do. Now here's the problem with self-denial. Self-denial, the irony is that I can deny myself and still be completely self-consumed. As a matter of fact, most self-denial, it leads to self-righteousness. I like to say that self-denial is the drug dealer for self-righteousness. It's what feeds it. It's what influences its habit. Self-righteous people run to the street corner of self-denial to get a fix. Why? Because I'm denying this. You're not, and it makes me better than you. But here's the problem. Self-denial still leads me to self-consumption. I love this quote, self, it cannot dethrone self, or what? It would wear the victor's crown. You see, sometimes people are like, I'm going to deny myself alcohol, and God will be pleased with me. And they do that because they've had a problem with it, only to find what? That now they're really kind of proud of the fact that they kicked this particular habit. So you've, you've moved from drunkenness, which is not good, to pride, which is one of the seven things that God hates, which, by the way, isn't in, in drunkenness. So you're progressing worse through self-righteousness. The problem, self-denial leads to self-righteousness. It leads to you being more lost than you were to begin with. This is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let him deny himself. So what's the difference? Denying self can be defined as the sacrifice of self 
and its desires and interests. Now, the difference. The difference between self-denial and denial of self, it's very subtle. Self-denial is self-sacrifice. Denying self is the sacrifice of self. Self-denial is when self denies something at once. It desires. Denying self is when the desires of self are denied altogether. It's not that I lay aside desire. It's that I lay aside the right to have desire. I'm laying aside me. It's not what I want. It's me. My desires are not the problem. I'm the problem. And then my desires. Denying self is denying me. And Jesus is saying that we have to come to the point where we accept the reality that I can't do it on my own and we have to give over of all of ourself, not just denying self. You see, denying self is birthed from a permanent place of brokenness where I throw up my hands. I'm like, I can't do it anymore. Where I come to the end of me, I see control. I let go and give it all to God. Denying self describes the point in which I deny myself the right to control any aspect of my life. I voluntarily come to a point of surrender. I deny self and I cede control to Jesus. Self cannot dethrone self or it would wear the victor's crown. The key is the enthronement of Jesus not the denial of self. That's the key to the life in Christ. And you know what? Christianity has entirely missed at this point. We've warped it, we've twisted it, and we have preached self-denial, self-help, self-discipline as the cure, the remedy of our problems. When the reality is death to self, life in Christ, me coming to the cross and letting go and giving it all to God is the key. In the second chapter of Joel Olstein's best-selling book, one of the, the most preeminent, dominant Christian pastors in the world, and his best-selling book, Become a Better You, second chapter is titled, Be Positive Towards Yourself. It is the second of seven keys to a better life. And two of the subpoints he makes in this groundbreaking chapter is that you need to learn, the key is you need to learn to like yourself. And you need to learn to have confidence in yourself. The irony is that that's not what Jesus has said. Because Jesus says, if you, whoever desires to come after me, it begins with you making a decision that self is the problem. I can't make it better. I can't put lipstick on it. Like it's the problem. I'm the problem. I need to cede control of me entirely. It's not self-improvement. It's death to self. That's what Jesus is saying. Die to you. You need to like yourself. No, you don't. You need to die to yourself. I need to develop better self-discipline. No, you need to die to yourself and have Jesus transform you from the inside out. It's a completely radical, different take, but Christianity has missed it. But then there's a third step. Whosoever desires, let him deny 
The third step, take up his cross. Now, there are two things that make this statement quite strange. First, Jesus is making this statement, and if you're not a student of Scripture or you are, note, Jesus has not died on the cross, making it a religious symbol. Like, we process this as Christians looking back to it. Jesus hasn't died on the cross. It hasn't been hung in churches worldwide. Like the Pope doesn't come out holding a big cross. Like none of that's happened. And yet Jesus, Jesus says, take up his cross. And he hadn't died on the cross. Not to mention the negative stereotype that the cross had to a first century Jew. Roman criminals were beheaded. Jews, barbarians, everyone else, they were crucified. And note why they were crucified. And this is a misconception as well. Understand, they were never crucified because that was an effective execution technique. Matter of fact, if you really think about it, a crucifixion, though horrifying, was a really poor execution technique. Why? It took three days, typically, for a person being crucified to die. Beheading, that's a lot quicker, a little bit more effective. The gas chamber, more effective form of execution. Lethal injection, more effective. A an execution technique that takes days is not a very effective execution technique. But understand that the cross, the cross was designed by the Romans, or at least it was used by the Romans, as a symbolic image of brokenness, death, and total surrender. That's why. When the Romans conquered someone that was rebelling, they would take the rebellious, they would line the streets with crosses, and they would nail them to the crosses. People would have to walk by them for days as they're slowly dying, and it was a, it was a stark reminder of who was in control. And so Jesus is saying, whoever desires, deny self, make a decision that I am dead. I'm dead to me. I've only made a mess of things. And then take up your cross or live in a state of, remind, of a constant reminder that I am not my own, that I have surrendered, that I am broken, that I am dead to me. To take up, the verb tense is literally to keep taking up. It is a continual daily action. Now the choice to deny self, that's a one-time permanent decision that then's followed by taking up your cross or daily reminding myself that I've died, that I am not my own. His cross. A person who took up a cross was a man who had surrendered himself to a destiny, a destiny of death. No one picked up a cross and then laid it back down and got, a, got to escape. A man with a cross on his back knew his fate was sealed. A man who took up a cross... He knew he was the walking dead, not a zombie, like literally the walking dead. Now the fourth step here, the final step. Whosoever desires, let him deny himself and take up his cross and do what? And follow me. Now I find it interesting that we're told by Jesus to take up our cross or literally to raise it up from the ground. But do you know that Jesus doesn't then say that we're to carry our cross? Once again, that's a misconception because, well, this is my cross to bear. And like we even have like 
Looney Tunes who will like put a cross up on their back and walk across the United States to make some great point. Jesus just says, take it up, pick it up. Doesn't say to carry it. He just says, pick it up. What does he say after we pick it up? Well, to follow him. Now, why would Jesus tell us to pick up the cross, but not to carry it? Well, the cross that Jesus spoke of, it was a cross that could not be carried by oneself. Do you know one of the the subtle truths of the crucifixion is that it was impossible for you to commit suicide by crucifixion. Like you can't crucify yourself. Like it's impossible. Like even if you get to the point where you got, you got the, the cross up into the ground, it's standing up, you even have hoisted yourself, you've nailed your feet in and got one hand in. Now how you nail in the other hand? Like you can't do it. Like no one can kill themselves through a crucifixion. You can't crucify yourself. So Jesus is not saying take up your cross and go kill yourself. You can't do it. The, cell, the cross that Jesus is speaking of, it's different. Note that not even Jesus could carry his own cross. It's a provocative thought because in Luke 23, we're told that as they led him away, they led hold of, of one named Simon. And what did they do? They, they laid on to him Jesus' cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Simon, Jesus couldn't carry his own cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, we're told, and I think this makes a lot more sense with this in mind, that though he, speaking of Jesus, was crucified in, in what? In weakness. He couldn't do it on his own. Yet he lives by the power of God, for we shall live with him by the power of God towards us. Jesus was crucified in weakness. And we're crucified in weakness, not something we can do on our own. Note, we can only pick up the cross. We can only choose the death of self. The deed itself, it must be carried out by another. A savior must carry the cross for us that Jesus is the one who carries our cross. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, well, the first thing is you have to decide who Jesus really is. You're not following a guru. You're not following a religious leader. You are following the Son of God, the Savior, the Christ. So first you have to decide who Jesus is. But if you decide that you now want to follow him, no matter where that might lead. Well, first, desire the life that Jesus wants to provide. Are you sick of doing it on your own? Are you ready to let go and let God because the second step is that you are to deny self? You are to choose to place your life in the hands of another and then you're to take up your cross or choose to live a life of daily surrender and follow Jesus, or allow Jesus to become your life's all. Paul would say to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That old man, his passions, his desires, he's dead. I don't live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The key, folks, is not self-denial. The key 
is denying self and following Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for your word. 